Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the first epistle of John in the New Testament. First John chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, John writes and says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us now and bless us. We ask you to open our hearts and minds to your word by the work of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would open your word to our hearts and minds that we might behold wondrous things out of your law, Lord. And so we pray that you would bless us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. As we've been working through 1 John... We come to this section, and John tells the recipients of this letter, and that's how it was originally received as a letter from the Apostle John, why he was writing to them. <clears throat> and if you can imagine, if someone came into your assembly back in the first century and said, we, I, I have received a letter, an epistle, from the Apostle John, and it talks about you a little bit, has some things to say to you. That might be a little nerve-wracking. You know, we think like, oh, because we know we've read it. We've had centuries to study this as a church and as in our generation. I hope everybody has at some point sat down and read the five chapters that, that we have that make up this, this letter. Originally, it didn't have chapter divisions or verses in it. It was a letter, and it was meant to be read all at once. And so we, for purposes of spiritual meditation and, and digestion of the truth... Uh, we take it in small bites, okay? That's why we're going through it this way. But I would encourage you sometimes, just sit down and read through the whole letter. because It's a beautiful letter. But as I say, you can somewhat imagine that if you were living in that the congregation that first received this, many believe it was possibly the Ephesian church. Uh, tradition tells us uh, in history that John was in Ephesus in his old age and that he was there for a long time. We've talked about that before. He may have just written it to the church. Uh, it may have gone out. We clearly know it didn't. It got copied. There's never been in the history of the church any dispute over this letter. You know, sometimes like with the Book of Revelation, uh, there was some question. Well, was this really from the apostle? And later on, when it was first received, uh, it was just that received. And then later, people began to wonder. Well, maybe it's not really scripture or something. And so, because uh, some people didn't like some of the things it said. And as we just read earlier, a chapter out of it. Some things in Revelation are kind of dark and enigmatic, so difficult to understand. Uh, so some said, oh, well, that can't be, because everything else John wrote was so simple and plain. But uh, eventually people read it and realized, no, this is Scripture. Uh, the Gospels were received. John's first epistle was received immediately. It was, there was no question. This was a letter from the Apostle John, and it has been received and read in the Christian church for 20 centuries. Um, so it's had a great effect upon generation after generation. But here he tells them why. He tells them, you know, he's been writing. And I think the introductory chapter, the section, 
would have calmed their hearts because they realized, oh, John wants us to know about being in fellowship with God, enjoying God's love and goodness, about confessing our sins and being cleansed and what it means to, to, to do that and to walk with the, with the Lord uh, and how Jesus is the propitiation, that is, he is the sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for any in the whole world who will ever be saved. They're going to have to come through Jesus. He's the propitiation for our sins and also for the sins of the whole world. And so <clears throat> they realize John doing in this letter what he always did. He's telling us about Jesus. He's telling us about God's love and mercy in Christ. He does speak and talk about how to tell who a true Christian is. <clears throat> and he sets the example by saying uh, a true Christian is one who loves his brothers and sisters and love does no ill uh, and that we keep his commandments, the old commandment, which would be God's word. We endeavor to, to follow it and to obey it because we love God. We obey out of obedience, or excuse me to say, out of gratitude, because of God's great goodness and love to us. <clears throat> so John has a lot to say. <clears throat> excuse me. But even when he's writing about judgment, he's doing so to wean men away from bad things so that they would learn to trust in the Lord and enjoy his goodness. So he says in verse 12, uh, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So when we start this, we realize he addresses here little children, fathers, and young men. Now, he actually, at the end of verse 13, where he says, I, I write to you little children, it's a, it, it's a Greek word that means the same thing as the word used at the beginning of verse 12, little children. It means the same thing. But it's a different word. Uh, the first word that's used is technia, and it means little children. The Greek word technia means, uh, technon means child. Technion is the diminutive form, means a little child, and that's what he uses here. Uh, and the word uh, technion or technon has to do with someone who's been begotten, someone that has to do with their, their family. Uh, the, the word that's used at the end of verse 13, little children, is uh, paideon, and that's from the Greek word pais, which means child, but it, again, this word is a diminutive, and it's used interchangeably. Um, in Luke 18, 15, uh, when Mark uh, 10, 13, we find the word paideia used to mean a little child like a babe in arms, somewhat. Um, but he's addressing the children here, and that has to do with them being uh, able to understand and follow directions more than anything else. Sometimes the word pice the non-diminutive form is used to, uh, uh, as a term for servants. Um, all right, so I wanted to bring that out. That's uh, your Greek lesson for today. Okay, you knew you were going to get one if you've been here before, so that was it, all right? Um, so he says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now remember in Jeremiah 31 when the Lord said uh, they, that he will establish his covenant with Israel, uh, let's go ahead and turn there because this has to do with what we're talking about today. In Jeremiah 31, and as I said before, this is an easy passage to remember because you just have to remember one number for this. It's Jeremiah 31, 31. If you're like me, I always appreciate those little aids to memorization. I just have to remember it's Jeremiah 31, what verse starts at 31. Okay. And God says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, this is quoted in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8, and in Hebrews chapter 10 as applying to the covenant that we are in because of Jesus Christ. So he's not just speaking here to uh, Old Testament people. He's speaking to the church in this. 
But he says that this new covenant that he's going to establish, and remember when we have the Lord's Supper, this cup is the what? The new covenant, Jesus said, in my blood. Um, but he says in verse 32 that this new covenant would be not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. The Ten Commandments were written on tables of stone. They were external. They were told, here's what God wants you to do. They broke those commandments. God's saying, I'm going to do something. It's not going to be an external commandment. It will be external, but I'm going to do something different. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So he's saying, it's not just going to be an external commandment that they'll read and turn away and forget about. God says, I'm going to write it in their hearts and minds. So wherever they go, they'll know of my love and they'll know what I require of those who are mine. So God says that's the new covenant. It's going to be internalized, having God's word in our hearts. That doesn't mean that God sanctifies your uh, thoughts and turns them into the same as the Bible. That means God's going to take his word that's in the scriptures and put it in your heart and mind. Okay, We don't want to baptize our own reasonings and say, well, whatever I think must be the same as the Bible because God said he's going to put his law in my hearts and minds. Some people do think that today. Okay, and they teach like, well, whatever pops into your head, it might be the voice of God, so just do whatever you think the Lord's telling you to do. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is to the law and to the testimony, as it says in Isaiah 8. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. It's God's word that we have objectively in the Bible, externally, internalized by the Holy Spirit, writing it in our hearts and minds so that our memories have scripture in them okay that's why it's really important to read your bible and to listen to it when it's read god says he's going to do this but verse 34 is what i want us to look at no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me this is the mark of those that are in the new covenant for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them says the lord now, the least of you, remember when the disciples asked Jesus, saying, Who is greatest in the kingdom of God? And he took a little child, and by the way, Pideon, same word that's used here in 1 John, and said that child in the midst, and said, uh, Whoever would be great among you must become like this little child. Uh, in other words, uh, you need to be submissive, you need to be teachable, and you need to recognize that you know your safety is in the love of the Lord. If you remember when they brought the Pideon, little children, to Jesus, the disciples uh, rebuked those mothers and said, What are you doing? And in Mark chapter uh, 10, 13, it says that, and also in Luke 18, 15, it says, And Jesus took them up in his arms and blessed them. Uh, and he told the disciples, if you want to be great, you have to become like a little child. He went so far as to say, unless you become like little children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you have to be willing to receive and be taken by God's word, by the hand, and led to trust in Christ. It's not up to you. See, adults can be rather rebellious at times. Children can too, also. But like we read in um, Psalm 131, uh, a meek child resting upon its mother's bosom, trusting and being at peace... That's what Jesus, I believe, is pointing at. 
But the Lord says, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God says, even the children will know me because I'm the one who forgives their sins. We've talked about this a lot in the past. If you talk to our children, what do they know? They might not be able to expound great theological truths, but actually they do expound great theological truths. Uh, they might not know a lot of fancy vocabulary from Greek and Latin and things like that. But if you ask them, what do they know about Jesus? They know that Jesus died for them and that he loves them and that he died on the cross. If, you know, when you ask a child, well, what do you believe? I, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Well, why do they say that? Because God has forgiven them. They know the Lord. They don't know him exhaustively. None of us do. Only God knows himself. But our children know that, that the Lord Jesus Christ and through him, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit has forgiven their sins. And they have a true knowledge of God when they trust in Jesus. So when John writes, and I believe he is here writing to the little children in the congregation, he says, I've written to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Salvation comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> uh, they trust in him. In his name alone is forgiveness of sins found. We are justified in his name. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, which included adults and children, tells them, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 13.38 and 39, uh, Paul preached and said, through Jesus you are justified from all things that you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Because... The law externally, just like the mirror illustration we use, it can show you that you're filthy, but it can't do anything about it. A mirror can't cleanse you. But Jesus Christ, through his precious blood, can forgive us our sins and get the garbage out of our lives. Um, in Romans 3.20, we're told that you know the law can, cannot justify us, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It just shows you that you're filthy. That's Romans 3.20. But salvation, righteousness, forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ. And so John says, I've written to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Uh, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. He says, you've come to know him. Uh, you, you've come to know the one who is eternal. When he says from the beginning, he's saying that doesn't mean that he had a beginning at some point. He was there. Remember Genesis 1.1? Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, in John, excuse me, Genesis 1-1. In John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word. It doesn't say in the beginning the Word came into being. That didn't happen. The Word is eternal. It's the Word of God. It's uh, in God the Son incarnate as our Lord, as we know Him, as our Lord Jesus Christ. But in the beginning, and so that would be the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he writes, So I've written to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning... Now, it's important to recognize, why is John saying this? He's honoring God's work in his hearers. John's not saying, I know you people are just stone-cold ignorant and don't know anything unless I tell you. And sometimes preachers have that approach, and it's not very effective because, you know, when you insult someone's experience and intelligence, they're generally not going to listen to much that you have to say after that. Uh, you don't want to tickle their ears, but John wrote to his hearers knowing that I'm not writing to you because you don't know anything. I'm writing to you because you have come to a knowledge of forgiveness and you have known him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you because there has been a work of grace done in your lives. And I want to encourage that and bring you along in it 
and let you know that there's some wonderful things that God has for you. There are some things you need to be aware of and look out for because we are sinners, as he says in chapter 1. But there is forgiveness and cleansing and mercy and fellowship, friendship with God. So he says, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him. You have a true knowledge of God. Jesus said in John chapter 17, uh, he says, And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know, as, again, talked about this before, but let me reinforce things I've said before. I don't mind doing that. I've learned over the years it is necessary. Uh, Jesus didn't define eternal life the way we might. Now, it is defined the way we might define it, so it's not wrong. I would say, well, that means to live forever and ever and ever and ever. Okay, that's Eternal life is just that. It's eternal. It goes on and on, forever and ever. It never will end. Okay, But Jesus defines it as qualitative, not quantitative. He defines it as having a relationship, knowing God. This is eternal life. What is eternal life? To know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It will endure forever, but eternal life is to know God. And that's what John is talking about here. You have known him who is from the beginning. You've come to a true saving knowledge of the one who is from the beginning. That has to do with him as creator, Genesis 1.1, and redeemer, John 1.1. You come to know him. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Well, John tells us elsewhere in this epistle that you know faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Christ taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the same word that's used here that's translated the wicked one. Um, the tonponiron is the Greek. Um, so he's saying that uh, you have overcome him. He's not saying that uh, you know you uh, overcame him a long time ago and that's that and you know it's all over and done with. He does mean, mean it's been a victory that achieved, but you're still enjoying it. It's that Greek perfect that shows up. A completed action in past time that has present results. How did this happen? God graciously forgave you, brought you out of death. He translated you, transferred you out of the kingdom of Satan, out of the kingdom of death, into the kingdom of his dear son. God has given you eternal life. So you young men. Uh, and so he writes here to little children, to fathers. The word fathers is the, can also be translated parents, okay? It's a masculine gender, but it's you know the inclusive idea of those who are parents. Uh, from the commandment, honor your father and your mother. Uh, but he is writing to them, saying, you've known him. He's writing to you young men. And it literally, it's, you know, you you, uh, uh, you, you young ones. Uh, the Latin is ad, adul, adul, adolescentes. Okay, we get the word adolescence. Okay, young men. Um, you've overcome the wicked. And then he says again, I've written to you little children, because you have known the father. You've come to know God. You have a true knowledge. This is important for us, you know, as, as parents and as older adults to recognize our little children, they really, they know the Lord, you know, if, if they're believers and we want to teach them about Jesus, they come to a real knowledge of God. They know the Father. What does that mean? Well, if a child should know, now father, earthly fathers at some point always fail because of, you know, we're sinful creatures, uh, but even the best of fathers sometimes fail. But we are the analogy. You know, we understand the idea of fatherhood because we've either had fathers, hopefully that we're good, but if not, we recognize what God says, and we've seen other fathers. We recognize, okay, I know what fatherhood is supposed to be, primarily from Scripture. And from that starting point, the analogy of fatherhood, 
as it says in Ephesians, uh, God the Father, from whom all, literally, fatherhood in heaven and earth is named. From that analogy, we, we go on and recognize, okay, understand what an earthly father should be, and as a father, I endeavor to be that, but I recognize with God, uh, there's no flaw in the truth of that. He is the reality that the analogy points to. We might be the shadow, but he is the substance. And so, little children, they, they come to know God as their father, the one who cares for them, the one who looks out for them, the one whom they can trust, the one whom they can cry out to in times of trouble. And seeing we're supposed to become like little children, we can all learn this. This is not just addressing the children, it's addressing all of us. We all need to know the Father and to know his love. Again, verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. He stresses that point with fathers. You have a true knowledge of the one who is from the beginning. And then finally, he says, I have written to you, young men. And then he gives three things here. Because you're strong. God has strengthened you by his word. And nobody says, and the word of God abides in you. If you remember in Psalm 119, if you have your Bibles, let's turn and look at that, because this is a very important passage. In uh, Psalm 119, at verse 11, excuse me, verse 9, uh, David wrote and said, How can a young man cleanse his way? All right, young men, you want to have your way cleaned up? You know, I don't know if anybody's told you to clean up your act. Okay, sometimes you get told that when you're young. Sometimes you get told that when you're old. Okay, but uh, how do you cleanse your way? How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Note that. By paying attention to what God has said. Avoiding the pitfalls that Scripture warns us about and walking in the path that he has pointed for us to walk in. <clears throat> uh, he leads us in his way. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Uh, David goes on in verse uh, 11 and says, Your word I have hidden in my heart. So taking heed to God's word, it's not just the external word. Here we see this new covenant demonstrated even in the Old Testament scriptures. Okay? Uh, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. This whole psalm is a prayer for God to put his word in the heart, in the heart of the one who wrote it and for all of us. But note that. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So you young men are strong. Why? Well, he's written to you because you are strong. You have strength. Where does it come from? God's Spirit abiding in you. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And as we abide in Him, uh, we're able to walk according to God's Word. The Word of God abides in you. You know, the Bible talks about us abiding in Christ, but it talks about God's Word abiding in us. And that means we hold it in our hearts. We should be reading Scripture. You know, if you want to you see your life improve, saturate yourself with Scripture. Read your Bible if, you're, if it's difficult for you to read, then, you know, everybody here has access to some form of audio scriptures, I'm sure. Get a headset, turn on, the, you know, find the, the software, uh, download the app, listen to scripture, listen to it. Get it into your heart and into your mind. Get your Bibles out and open, shut off that computer sometimes, shut off the TV. Put away the romance novels, ladies, gentlemen, 
put away the gun catalogs or whatever it is you're looking, or the fishing ones or whatever those things are that, that detract us. Um, get your Bible open. God appointed His written word to be the means of feeding our souls. But He writes and says, "You young men, I've written to you what? Because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one." Now He said that earlier. What He's doing here in this last uh, verse. He's expounding on when he said, you've overcome the wicked one. He's telling them why. You've had the message of the gospel in your heart. That's why you're strong. That's why you were able to get the victory, because God worked in you graciously. Um, in the, the scriptures, you know, if you remember that God, when he wrote to Timothy, uh, through the apostle Paul, Timothy got a letter from God, written, written the hand that wrote it was Paul's, but in Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter uh, 1, Paul, in writing to Timothy, first he starts off in verse 3, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, that without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. This is Second Timothy chapter 1. Paul said, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. Timothy was a young man who had assisted Paul on his missionary journeys. But as Paul writes to him, he says, he says, I think of you, I pray for you. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Paul said, I know your mom and your grandma, and I know they love Jesus, and I know, Timothy, that's why you come to trust him also. They taught you. If you remember uh, chapter 3, you know, we're talking about mothers a little bit today. Paul writes to Timothy, and he warns him of false teachers, but in chapter 3, at verse 14, he says, You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And some might say, well, Paul's talking about himself there, because Paul was the one that taught Timothy the gospel. Well, that would be wrong. If you continue reading, you find out who Paul's talking about. He tells Timothy, you need to remember who it was that taught you the gospel. He said, continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now, Paul understood he had taught Timothy, but then note what he says here. He says, and that from childhood, literally that's brefe, from, as a little babe in arms, you have known the holy scriptures from childhood. Now, he talks about his mother and his grandmother, and he talks about when Timothy was being carried around by his mom and his grandma. Clearly, they took him to hear the word of God, first in the synagogue and then later in the church when they come to, came to know about Jesus. In Acts chapter 16, keep your finger right there, okay? Uh, but in Acts the 16th chapter, at the very first verse of the chapter, we read about Paul's journey in Asia Minor. Uh, and he says, Then he came to Derby, this is Acts 16.1, and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there. The word disciple, mathetes, it can mean a student of the Lord. Okay, That's what the word disciple actually means, a student. Uh, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. He has a good name, by the way, Timotheos. Uh, Timos means to fear or respect and reverence, and theos means God. So his mother uh, gave him a good godly name, one who fears God, uh, one who respects God. We're told he was the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. 
Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And Paul had an entourage of people that were helping him and they, they were traveling. But Paul said, I'd like to have this young man travel with us. Now, Timothy was a, a young man, probably late teens, uh, possibly early 20s, but he was a young man. And then we told, and he took him and circumcised him uh, because of the Jews who were in that region. Now, Paul did this so Timothy could go with him into the synagogues. And Acts 16 is right after all the hullabaloo, all the hubbub that happened because when men came up and said, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved, Paul opposed that and fought it. And they went down to Jerusalem, had a big council, and the, the apostles said, no, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised in order to be Christians. That's not necessary. They need to trust in the Lord and then some other things they wrote in Acts 15. But they said, you don't have to go through the ritual ceremonial circumcision to be saved. Paul got that established, and then he turns around and circumcises Timothy. Reason why is it was no longer an issue of salvation. It was an issue of being able to go and preach to people. So Paul, as he said, I'll, I'll do whatever is necessary. Timothy obviously submitted to circumcision in this. Uh, so he had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went through the cities, and when they went through, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So Timothy was a great help, but Paul reminds him, your mother and your grandmother are the ones that were first believed, and you were taught the scriptures. Note that, that from childhood, from as a little baby in arms, you have known the scriptures, the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, so those of you who have had godly mothers that taught you the word of God, you need to be very thankful for that. And, and mothers here, remember, uh, your children will remember what you tell them all through their lives. The great theologian of the 19th century, Dr. Charles Hodge, who taught at Princeton Seminary, and that was at a time when Princeton was sending out literally thousands of missionaries all over the world. And these were men that were sound in the faith, uh, that established churches, that preached the gospel. Uh, he was very profound. His three-volume systematic theology, though it was written way over 100 years ago, is still used today as a textbook because it is so well done. But when and, and just the depth of development of the doctrines that are in the Bible is fantastic. But when someone asked Dr. Hodge at one point in his life, where did you learn all of this? How did you come to know all this theology and all these things about God and the, these things that are in his word that a lot of us just kind of skip over? How did you learn all this? And his answer was, at my mother's knee. He said, what do you mean? He said, my mother taught me the catechism and the scripture when I was a little boy. And that's what shaped his character and his heart. So mothers recognize you have a fantastic duty. Uh, those of us who have had godly mothers, and mothers that were just good women that influenced us, we need to thank God for it. But no, Timothy's a really good example of this, uh, what we're talking about here. You young men are strong. Why? Because you have the word of God abiding in you. That didn't happen in a vacuum. That's because they had godly mothers and hopefully godly fathers who taught them the word of God. You know, So those young men, it abode in their heart and abides in their heart. And if you say, well, I didn't have that. Well, beloved, get your Bible out and start reading it, okay? Don't blame your mama for your shortcomings, all right? Let's grow up on this one. But if you have had this, fine. If you're a mother, recognize what your responsibility is. Teach your children about Jesus. Uh, 
No matter what you give your children, if you don't prepare them for eternity, then you have failed in your duty as a parent. You know, if your children have the best of everything, good education, good clothing, good health, but they don't know anything about Jesus, on judgment day they will be doomed. And you can't, you're not going to be able to stand before God and say, well, you know, but I, I made sure they had a good education, or I made sure they always had money in their pocket. That doesn't matter. Prepare your children for eternity, and then they'll be prepared for anything else. Give them a good education. Make sure they're healthy. Look out for them. Provide for them as best as you can, but provide not just earthly things. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them the gospel, and uh, point them to the word of God and God's love. That'll be their strength in days ahead. All right, having said that, Paul, or rather John, I should say, told the saints why he wrote to them. So now we know that he wrote to a group of people that loved Jesus where that work of grace had been done. Um, and it's important to recognize who we are. We are those who are strong, who have the word of God abiding in us, and by God's grace through Jesus. Because Jesus gives us his victory and we participate in it. We have overcome the wicked one by God's grace. And so let's give praise and thanks to the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and confess that this work is all yours, Lord. And we thank you for working in us. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed. And we thank you that you do forgive sin, Lord. And we pray that you would strengthen us and help us not just to feel bad about where we've failed, Lord, but to turn to you. And to recognize that you do love us and that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, though we're not what we should be, we thank you, Lord, that you can work in us and make us what we ought to be uh, by your grace and conform us to your image. And we pray that you would bless us and help us. Give us courage, Lord, and help us to face the future, Lord, without fear. Know that you are our God, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are with us even to the end of the age. And give us grace to honor you and to walk with you, Lord, and to have that fellowship that your word speaks of and to enjoy the forgiveness of our sins and your mercies in our lives. Keep us, we pray, from sin and temptation, both now and in the days ahead, and help us to walk with you. And we give you all the thanks and the praise, Father, for we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.